Well, welcome back. We are in week four of our series, Job, A Theology of Suffering. And if you've been with us, we've been journeying through the book of Job. If you are new here this week or haven't been with us, we've been talking about how Job, who's one of the Old Testament characters, he's got a whole book about his story, goes through suffering. Job goes through immense suffering as he loses his family, his kids are killed, his uh, servants are killed, many of them. He loses a lot of his livestock, and eventually his body is covered in boils. And this isn't because Job has done anything particularly wrong. In fact, Job is considered a righteous man, we're told. But it's because there is an interaction between Satan and God, where God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job, who is righteous? And Satan says, well, Job's only righteous because he has all these blessings, And so God allows Satan to take some of these aspects of Job's life from him to show that Job will continue in his path of righteousness. And so we've watched Job suffer. We've watched him experience the pain of loss, the grief and the sorrow. And we've watched his friends come alongside him. He has three friends who have shown up to grieve with him. They've been silent with him for a week of mourning where no one talked And then we saw Job speak about his experience and wish that he had never been born. He wished it would have been better if God had just had him die on that day of his birth or if he never existed. And then we've seen his friends start to respond to his mourning, to his grief. And the response that we've seen so far has been one of blame on Job, that this must be his fault, that it must be because of something Job's done or some great sin he has in his life as to why he's experiencing this suffering. And so that's where we find ourselves, in the middle of this interaction between Job and his friends, his friends who have come to help support him, but so far we have not seen much support from them. And so we're going to continue today looking at another interaction of Job and his friends. Before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that we can come before your word today, that we know it to be true, that we know it to be alive and active, and we seek to learn more about you this morning from it. Lord, I am humbled that we can open up your word and hear you speak. So Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room today, for anyone watching online, that as we hear your word, Lord, that it would lead to our lives looking more like you. Lord, that you would use it to convict sin in our lives. You would use it to encourage us when we are down. And Lord, that you would use it ultimately to show us who you are so that our lives may be pointed after you, so that we may seek to glorify you in all that we do. And so, Lord, may you go before this time today. May you be honored and glorified in our pursuit of you in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was reading about a minister this week who shared a story, and this is what he said. He said, at home I have a silk bookmark given to me by my mother. He said, when I examine the wrong side, I see nothing but a tangle of threads. It looks like a big mistake. One would think that someone had done it who didn't know what they were doing. But when I turn over the bookmark and look at the right side, I see beautifully embroidered the words, God is love. Often we look at challenges and suffering from the wrong side, but one day we shall see it from another standpoint, and then we shall understand. And as I heard this this week, I like this visual because it's easy to look at the wrong side of things. It's easy to look at the tangled side of all the threads and not be able to discern what's going on. 
not comprehend the beauty that is on the other side of something like that bookmark. Job's suffering, his interactions with his friends remind me of this. His friends are looking at the tangled mess of Job's life, of his suffering, and they're making assessments and suggestions based on a false view of Job and on what Job has done. But there is more to the story. There's more to Job's suffering than they can see, more than the tangled mess that they believe is Job's sin that's got him to where he is suffering. So let's look this morning at Job's interaction with his friend Bildad and see how this theme continues. If you would open up your Bibles, you follow along on the screen, we're going to start in Job chapter 8 today. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit to be able to figure out what's going on, but we're going to start in Job chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginnings was small, your latter days will be very great." So we're going to pause there and unpack this a little bit and what Bildad is saying here. There's this doctrine of retribution to Job and his children that Bildad is basing his theology upon. And he starts off right away rebuking Job for Job's words towards his previous friend Eliphaz, describing Job's Job's words as just this great wind. And yet Job here is the one who's suffering. Job is the one who's going through these trials And because of his friend's misguided reasoning for Job's suffering, they're critical towards his defense. Job has defended himself, saying it's not because of his sin that he is in this position, and yet his friends continue to be critical of him. Bildad defends defends God to Job here, showing that God doesn't pervert justice or pervert the right. And he uses these rhetorical questions for Job, about who God is to show Job that's not who God is because he, it's not that God isn't just or right, and he wants Job to understand who God is and that Job must be in the wrong, and that's why Job is experiencing this suffering. Which is funny because it's not that Job has ever said anything to make one think that Job doesn't believe God to be just or right. But Bildad is continuing in the theology that we saw last week from Eliphaz bring forth this idea that the only reason Job could be in the situation he's in, the only reason that Job and his children could have suffered the way that they have is because of some sin in Job's life and that this is punishment from God. In verse 4, it says, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. So Bildad's saying, If not you, Job, at least your children had great sin. I imagine how much this would have hurt Job to once again have his kids brought into the mix here and attributed their sin to why they died. Blame Job or possibly his sin for why his children suffered and died. The the desire of Job's friends here is not one to show empathy. It's to write what they believe is a wrong view of God that Job has. Their purpose isn't to come along and support Job, 
but really what they're trying to do here is exhort Job to turn to God, to plead for mercy from God. This word mercy, I looked up the Hebrew word, it has the meaning to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, to favor or to bestow upon one. So their thought is if Job, who's an inferior, would only plead to God, if he'd only repent of his sin and wrongdoings, then God would show Job kindness. You see, all the blame is upon Job. All the blame of the friends and why Job's children died and why Job has suffered and why his body's covered in boil, they believe that all the blame lies on Job and that he's the one that can move this forward if he would only repent, if he'd only admit his sin and turn to God. In verse 6, he says, If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. You see, Bildad again suggests that if, if Job was pure and upright, God would have restored him. If Job was who he said he was and was righteous, then God would not have done what he did to Job, that he would have delivered Job from this suffering. And since God hasn't, since we haven't seen God treat Job in this way, Bildad's suggesting that Job is not pure and upright like he would contend. There are many reasons for suffering, but it's not safe to do what Bildad has done and to infer that simply because one is suffering is a direct correlation with their sin. That if you've suffered, it's because you had some great sin and this is your punishment for that sin. Sometimes God chooses to use suffering as a punishment or as a way to realign our hearts with His, to turn us back toward Him. But there are many times we see throughout Scripture where suffering has nothing to do with one's sin. As we talked about last week, the ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ who suffered and yet was sinless. So we know that suffering and sin do not always go hand in hand. Verse 7 Bildad projects to Job that if he'd turn to God and repent and get right with the Lord, then his latter days would be great. He's trying to convince Job to move towards repentance by, by telling him that if he'd only do this, God will restore him. He's trying to give him hope that even though he's lost so much, that if he would humble himself before the Lord and repent of his sin, that God is in the business of restoration and will restore Job. He wants to give him the hope that will move him towards repentance. And while there is truth to this about who God is and about the fact that God is a God of restoration, that we can find hope in the fact that God can restore to us what's been lost. Job isn't in this position because of sin, so he has no sin to turn and confess to the Lord that has caused his situation. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning to see the conversation between Bildad and Job. So stick with me, but first we're going to move forward to chapter 9, 1 through 3, and see the response of Job to Bildad. So in chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So Job starts right away confirming what Bildad has stated. It's not that Job has ever said God's not just or God's not right. Job has never questioned God's character yet, but Bildad assumes that Job has this view of God because of his actions, because of the suffering 
that he's experienced. And yet, Job accepts both the truth of God's justice and his promises to the upright. In verse 2, Job responds to his friend with wisdom. He says, truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be right before God? You see, no one would accuse Job is sinning any more than others. Even Job recognizes that he is not completely righteous before God, that he is not a man without sin. He is someone who has righteous character, who's been seeking to live in light of the God's law, who's been making sacrifices and adhering to the law that God has. But he is not perfect. He would not suggest that he is. But Job knows that there's no unconfessed sin that he's harboring, no sin that he hasn't dealt with before the Lord. But he's saying, who can be in the right before God? Job primarily wanted to know, if I've not been righteous enough to escape the judgment of God, then who can be? And ultimately what Job is doing here is he's asking a foundational question, which is how can one find approval with God? How can one be considered righteous and not guilty before a holy God? And moving along in verse 3, Job says, If one wishes to contend with him, one cannot answer him once in a thousand times. You see, through all this, what we begin to see is Job has a desire, a desire to contend with God, which becomes an underlying sin as the book moves forward this desire that Job has of wanting God to answer and give answers for Job's experiences, to contest his treatment before God based on Job's own righteousness, forgetting that God is God, and thus in his sovereignty, God can do as he wills. And we later see Job realize this and repent of this in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Repent of how he comes before the Lord contending with God for his treatment. Jump with me in chapter 9 to verse 29 through 34 and look at Job's continued response to Bildad's treatment of him. Job says, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lyre, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. You see, Job knows that his sin is not the reason for his crushing. Thus he brings up the question of if he faces this condemnation despite of his righteousness, then why continue to labor in vain? Why continue to work at being righteous? Why continue to work at making the sacrifices for his sin if he, even though he's done all that, he still faces this great trial? And yet we know that we don't labor, we don't serve God in order to receive blessings and favor. That's not why we seek to follow God. That's not why we seek to follow his word and his ways. It's not so that we can then be blessed I don't go to church so that then God will give me great fortunes. I don't follow his words in the gospel so that then God will give me a healthy life. It's not a transactional relationship between God, but we should do these things and we should follow God's ways and labor in his will, not to be blessed, but so that we can glorify God because he is God and we are his humble servants. 
Job continues in verse 30 in this line of thought referring to his ways as seeking to be pure. He says, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lyre, 31, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes abhor me. So he's speaking of this idea of washing with snow. The description of the vain things that sinners do to justify themselves and cleanse themselves of their sin. The reality is that while this paints a picture of great efforts used to try to rid oneself of sin and to become pure, it is impossible to cleanse one's sin by oneself. It doesn't matter how much we wash ourselves or seek purity on our own, we are unable to obtain it. We cannot cleanse ourselves of our own sins. And Job continues showing that he's feeling more and more helpless in this journey. In verse 31, he says, You will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. He feels helpless. He feels as though as he's continued down this path of suffering, that no matter what he does, he just continues to feel like he's plunging into this pit of despair. His own clothes abhor him. One commentator said, One must be extremely dirty for their clothes to be ashamed to hang upon you. And this is what a convicted sinner feels. This is what Job is expressing here. And he's answering Bildad about who God is, recognizing that God is not a man as Job is. He says in 32, For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Job knows that God is God and that Job is Job. That he cannot contend with the holy God, that he does not, he's not able to go into the presence of God and argue with him because God is God. God's ways are God's ways and they are not man's ways. And so Job feels this great distance between God and himself. He feels he's been unfairly treated and yet really he knows there's no way for him to really address the problem or confront God about the mistreatment. But what he does desire, what he does express in 33, is that there would be some sort of mediator who could fill that gap between Job and God. He says in 33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. In feeling far from God, Job laments the fact that there is no mediator who could bridge that gap between Job and God. As those living this side of the cross, you and I, we should rejoice when we read this because we know that there is a mediator. There is one who bridges that gap between God and us, and that is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What good news for us that the very thing that Job longs for, that we know is a truth, that we know is a reality, that there is one who mediates between God and us. The desire that we see here for Job is that there would be one who would step in on his behalf, who would settle the issue at hand of his undeserved suffering and would stand in the middle of Job and God in this dispute. And as I've spent time in this passage this week, as I've read a lot of different reflections upon it, as I've thought about the problem here, what I've realized is the real problem is not the problem of suffering. 
Even though this is a central theme to the book of Job, and when most people think about Job, we go right away to it's all about suffering and Job's suffering. Yet the persistent problem and what most would argue is the real problem of the entire book of Job is not suffering and why it happened, but it's the attainment of a right relationship with God, which makes existence in suffering holy and acceptable. You see, when we have a right relationship with God, we are then able to navigate through those times of suffering. And so that's the underlying theme of this whole book is Job's relationship with God and the attainment of that right relationship with God so that Job can continue to endure through the suffering. Well, Bildad is not done with Job yet. Turn with me to Job 25. Bildad finishes up speaking to Job In verses 1 through 6, it says, Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his army? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Bildad's not saying anything new that hasn't been said by Bildad or his friends. He's arguing the greatness of who God is to Job. Arguing that God is so great, how could one contend against him? He's singing the same song that him and his friends have sung to Job all along concerning the power and the purity of God above all creatures. Bildad argues the greatness of God when Job has never objected to God's greatness. Job would agree. He would fully agree that God is great and that who is man in his sight. But due to Job's lack of repentance, due to his lack of willingness to throw up his hands and say, you guys are right, I have all this unrepented sin and that's why I've suffered and I'll go to God and I'll repent. Because he's not willing to do that, because we know there isn't that sin there, His friends think that he disagrees with who God is, and they want him to recognize God's greatness, that God is an impossible enemy for Job to go up against, and that ultimately he should stop resisting and surrender. And that surrender for his friends would equate repentance on Job's part, that he would finally be willing to repent. And so they keep beating him down with who God is and with Job's need to repent before the Lord. In verse 4, Bildad uses questions that Job has not contested in order to possibly help him understand his place as a sinner, just like everybody else, with hopes that it will make it easier for Job to confess and repent. And ultimately, Bildad drives home this point, showing us, emphasizing how lacking even creation is in relation to God. That mankind is simply maggots before God, the lowest of the low. His goal really is not to help Job, But his goal is to push Job to recognize how horrible he is, how worthless he is, so that he will in turn turn to God, that he will be driven to repentance. And yet his efforts here, they lack empathy. They lack care and kindness for Job that should be present when ministering to a friend in need. These are the last words of Job's friends here in chapter 25, And over the course of many chapters, Job's friends have failed to encourage and support him. 
They've left Job feeling rejected, lonely, and misunderstood. I want to look at one more response that Job has towards some of the criticisms leveled against him. So if you'd flip back with me to Job 19, verse 1 through 6, we're going to look at one last response of Job. It says, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job here echoes the speech, the question from Bildad's first speech in order to draw attention to how relentless his friends have been in condemning him. They've treated him in such a way that he uses these words of torment and break. The very words that are intending to encourage Job and move him towards repentance have actually done the opposite. They have hurt him and they have wounded him. Job's suffering continues in the treatment he's received from these three friends who don't listen to Job's words and are set on their agenda and their preconceived notion of sin and of suffering. Job considers what his friends have done, casting reproach upon him. Using the phrase ten times, which really doesn't mean that they've had ten interactions back and forth, but ten times is used as a way to show a full measure. Job is shocked that they feel no shame in their accusations against him and how they've wronged him. And he asserts that even if he has sinned, even if he has some grievous sin that he hasn't repented of, that this uh, in their assessment of him, that they've elevated themselves while disgracing Job rather than coming with empathy toward him. In verse 6, Job says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me. This phrase, put me in the wrong, it's the same verb that Bildad used back in chapter 8, verse 3. And Job uses this to make a clear point. And the point is this, that even in the very protesting of his innocence, Job is affirming his belief that God is just. But he also continues to affirm that his suffering is not because of his sin and that God is the one who has ultimately allowed it and brought it about. See, Job knows that for whatever reason that he is suffering, that it is not because of his doing, but it's because God has a hand in it. He knows that it's because God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me, he says. That God has played a role, some role that Job has no idea why or no idea the purpose, but he trusts that God is still in the midst of it. Throughout Job's interactions with his friends, they have been the least helpful that a friend could really be. They haven't listened well they haven't considered other options for why Job is suffering. They've spoken some truths, but without any consideration for Job's words. And we've seen poor theology that's been the foundation for their accusations against Job and his character. As I was reading back over this story, I believe that there's things that we can glean from these interchanges, a few important lessons for our lives as we approach suffering or as we journey alongside those who are suffering too. The first one that I would encourage us to is to counsel with humility. We watch Job's friends come and the way that they speak and the way that they project 
Job's suffering as his fault has a certain arrogance and a pride about them, that they are in the right and Job is in the wrong. And yet it is so important if we are going to counsel others, if we are going to come alongside others, that we have humility. Samuel Brengel, who was an early Salvation Army official, was once introduced as the great Dr. Brengel, and he later wrote in his diary, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him, helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me, and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the tree it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. You see, humility is an important characteristic for followers of Christ. We must be men and women who are seeking humility in our lives, and it should impact all aspects of who we are and how we view others. When we offer counsel to others, it should come from a place of humility rather than arrogance. If Bildad had possessed humility, he would have been able to be a greater support and encouragement to Job in his suffering. Not everyone suffers for the same reason. Certainly, we can identify some of the key reasons that people suffer and find common threads, but the reasons are not always the same. And so we have to be more cautious when we approach people in their sufferings. One of the great points of interchange between Job and Bildad is they return time and time again to this fact that God is great and that human beings are completely dependent upon that greatness. So even in what may appear to be the exact answer, we would do well to remember at all times that everyone needs God. Bildad, too, needs God and his grace. And so we should be wise in our counsel, showing humility and letting others know that the very thing that perhaps they need, we also need as well. Part of what would help us in our suffering and in coming alongside others who suffer as well is to pursue a right relationship with God. Thomas A. Kempis, who is an Augustinian monk, said, It is good for us that at times we have sorrows and adversities, because they often make a man realize in his heart that he is an exile and put not his hope in any worldly things. In our text today, we discuss the fact that the core of Job's story isn't suffering. It's one's relationship with God and how this impacts our ability to suffer, to endure in light of who God is. And so our pursuit must be reconciling our hearts to the Lord, not as an avoidance of suffering and hardships, but as a pursuit of God because He is our Lord and Savior. We don't pursue God so we can avoid suffering, but we pursue God so we are able to endure suffering when it comes our ways. And when we shift our thinking in this manner, when we pursue our relationship with Christ above all else, it will provide us with a clear lens to see things through. It will allow us to endure the hardships that we may face or to come alongside and counsel those who are enduring hardships near us knowing that in all things Christ is our sustainer. It is the attainment of a right relationship with God, which makes existence and suffering become a holy and acceptable thing. And I'm not saying that this makes suffering easy. I'm not saying that pursuing a right relationship with God means that when you suffer or when you go through loss, it will just be a walk in the park 
or that won't hurt. But what I'm suggesting is that we move our focus. We make the pursuit of God our priority. It will allow Him to sustain us even in the midst of deep suffering. And the best application that I can think of from this text in response to Job's declaration in 9.33 where he states, there is no arbiter between us, is to remember that we have an advocate. We can rejoice in the fact of our third point that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He is exactly what Job longed for. One who would stand in between the gap between us and God. What Christ does for us as he advocates on our behalf to a holy God. He advocates for us by living a sinless life, dying upon the cross and raising from the dead, and in turn extending his grace to each one of us. We no longer have to make sacrifices to appease God for our sins. We only need to turn to him, confess our sins, and let Jesus' blood cleanse us. What an amazing mediator Christ is. Scholar John Hartley, in his commentary on Job, summarized well this idea. He said, Job is working with the same logic of redemption that stands as the premise of the New Testament doctrine of the resurrection. Both hold to the dogma that God is just, even though he permits unrequited injustices and the suffering of the innocent. God himself identified with Job's suffering and the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ, who suffered unto death even though he was innocent. Jesus overcame his ignominious death by rising from the grace. In his victory, he, as God's son and mankind's kinsman redeemer, secured redemption for all who believe on him. While his followers may suffer in this life, he is their redeemer, their advocate before the Father. In this way, Job's confidence in God as his redeemer admits excruciating suffering stands as a model for all Christians. Knowing that we have a mediator, an advocate, should serve as a reminder to us of God's presence with us, even in the midst of suffering. I thought this week of Isaiah 43, 2, which says, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. And I want to share a clip of a song with you that I found this week. It's a beautiful song that reminds us that because Christ is with us, we can hold on to the fact that we have victory even in the midst of suffering. So take a look at this song. It's called You've Already Won. And we're just going to play a clip of it. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. And no matter what comes,
lines in the song also says, when the sea is raging, your spirit is my help. He'll fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll say that it is well. Oh, I know that it is well. So this week, may we remember that when we face suffering, our focus need not be on our suffering. While difficult, while trying, we must seek to remember to focus upon our advocate, our redeemer, the one who saves. Be encouraged that with Christ you can have peace even in the midst of your trials, even in the midst of your hardships and your pain and your suffering, because you can know that Jesus Christ will sustain you, he will provide for you, and he will ultimately give you eternal life with him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you, Lord, that you are with us at all times. We thank you for the reminder of that in your servant Job. Lord, help us to be reminded of that throughout our week, to turn to you when we are going through difficulties, to allow you to sustain us through your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And Lord, may that lead us to be able to glorify you in all aspects of life as our Lord and Savior. We love you and we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.